open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a legendary interview with Saifedina Moose. He's an Austrian economist and author of The Bitcoin Standard. And for this special section, we will be doing a week with Saifedina where we discuss five different major topics relating to Bitcoin and the economics behind them. Welcome to the podcast, Saifedina. Thank you for having me, Trace. This is a huge pleasure and an honor to be with you here. Let's get started with monetary history. Mm-hmm. When we look at monetary history, what is that? Maybe you could give us an overview of monetary history as it relates to the human race. Well, the way that I like to think about uh, monetary history, the way that I express it in my book is that the, the facet that I like to focus on, and I don't think this is the only one, but I think it is an important one, possibly now the most important one, is that money proceeds always towards whatever is the hardest to produce in a particular society. Whatever technology makes hard to produce for people at a certain place and time ends up being using as ends up being used as money, and so f- essentially in the first few chapters of my book, I explain how this relationship has evolved over time, as when a new harder money is introduced, it drives out the softer or the easier money, and ultimately. What I like to express in my book, what I've tried to communicate in my book, is that this is not a matter of uh, consumer choice. It's not about consumers deciding whether they like Betamax or VHS and then one of them wins. This is economic reality. The, the function of money that is the quintessential function of money is that it stores value. And the one, you know, anything can be a medium of exchange, essentially, because you can exchange it for something else. But what distinguishes a good from a bad money is how well it stores value. Because the point of money is that you use it to exchange. And in order to exchange, you have to store value. So in order to store value... Some forms of money are better at doing this in the long run than others. And these ones will naturally end up storing value better. Therefore, will end up storing a bigger chunk of value than the worse stores of value. So essentially, this is almost an inevitable process that wealth and money goes towards the people who have it in the hardest money. Because that hardest money continues to resist inflation, continues to resist someone expanding its supply as a response to an increase in demand for it. And so even if people are not even conscious of this relationship, it will naturally emerge through the logic of market action, just simply because for many generations, the people who, even if people were randomly assigning their money to different assets, the ones who end up choosing the one that serves the function of money best will end up prospering more and benefiting from it over time. And over time, more and more wealth will will end up there than in the forms of money that can be easily inflated. So you see with forms of money that are easy to inflate, as demand for them increases as a form of money, people make more of them, the supply increases, the value goes down, and then it becomes useless as a store of value. 
that's essentially, I think, the motivating story behind the, my book. So we're talking about this regression theory of money then, where we, we start off with some good that is saleable in the economy, but becomes the most saleable good. Mm. And because it's the most saleable, people are demanding it. And you're asserting that because there's that increase in demand, it sets up economic or market forces to then incentivize producing more of it. And as a result, whatever technology is able to have the hardest money, that then becomes the store value or becomes where people are going to be allocating the capital. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, the capital is going to go to the thing that is the hardest to produce because everything else will be inflated away by the producers. And so effectively, the monetary premium that accrues to an asset, because essentially what being money is, is that when somebody buys something, not for its own sake, but in order to exchange it for something else. And so the amount of demand for something as money is the amount of demand for something not for its own sake, but in order to exchange it later on uh, for something else. So therefore, that as monetary demand for any asset increases, it will raise the value of it. Now, if that asset is easy for other people to make more of, then effectively the increase in the price is going to end up being a transfer of income towards the people who produce that thing. So for instance, if everyone tomorrow, and I use this example, if everyone in the world tomorrow decided that they wanted to use copper as money, that's not going to make copper money. It doesn't matter what people think because the producers of copper will just continue to flood the market with more and more copper that will keep bringing the value of the copper down and so that the people who end up using copper as money will just end up with massive quantities of copper that they can't use and that will arguably eventually end up rusting even. And all that happens is that, you know, we've overproduced copper and we've made copper producers and miners very rich and effectively money goes money continues to be something else. So what about some of these other characteristics of money that are oftenly touted? We've got portability, durability. You mentioned copper rusting. We've got other uses for it, like day-to-day transactions or currency. So, you know, money's transferring value over time if it's a store of value. But then we also have, you know, currencies where you're transferring value over distance. So when we're looking at these things, is it only kind of this scarcity or this la- this inability to produce more of it? Because, I mean, we've got gold, but what about platinum? It's more rare. It's harder to produce than gold is. And yet it, it, it still has many of the same characteristics in terms of the durability, the portability. I mean, they're just two separate things on the periodic table. Yeah. And then we've even got other metals on the periodic table that are even harder to produce than gold or, or silver are. And actually some of them arguably you would say are even more constrained because they're byproducts of the production of some of these. And so it's not like you could even go out and have a mine specifically for iridium. Mm-hmm. You, you have to get the iridium only as a byproduct of like the platinum mm-hmm. production. And then, you know, when we're, when we're looking at this, I, you know, I, I guess I'm pushing back. Yes. We want something that's scarce or limited in amount to constrain the supply, but is that really the only thing or is there a whole lot more going on in the human action when it comes to yeah. like money, especially as society, gets more sophisticated uh, with the allocation of labor and and diversification of, you know, and specialization of labor and stuff like that as we get, like, more sophisticated in our technology and what we're able to use. So when it comes to other kinds of properties of money, things like uh, divisibility and portability and, um, you know, not rusting and not decaying and so on, I think these were much more important back in the past 
before modern industrialization allowed us to effectively make materials with all the kind of properties that we want. I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially trivial now to make plastics that's extremely durable. Um, carbon fiber, or carbon nano, fiber, nano exactly. technology, or titanium, things. platinum, all of that stuff. You can make very, um, you, you can make material with any kind of property that you want. So it's no longer really an issue about that, like it was, say, a thousand years ago when only a few metals could be made to have certain properties. And this um, is part of the bear market in commodities over the last 10,000 years, you would say? Just our ability to, to make more of of the physicality of the physical things, the corporeal yeah. things? Ultimately, we continue to make more of everything. And the one thing that we continue to make more of the least is gold. So that ends up being used as money. Yeah, but I mean, we, we still make piece. like 2,500 tons a year of gold. I mean, yeah. we, we could shift to platinum. There's there's a lot yeah, less so, of that I mean, actually produced. The thing is, for, for simplicity, I generally refer to the, easy, to the difficulty of producing more as a response. But I think that, you know, the key thing to understand is that it's not just about how much extra is being produced. It's about how much extra is being produced compared to the existing stockpiles of money. Oh, so now we're getting into stock-to-flow ratios. Exactly. That's could, why could, the stock-to-flow ratio is, is, is key in my book. Okay, so so what would the... You know, we got stock-to-flow ratio. What's the stock? What do, what do you mean by that? The stock is everything that's already in existence, that's already been mined, that has already been produced before the period that we're concerned with. And then the flow is all of the stuff that we add during this period. And so the stock of gold is effectively all of the gold that we have around the world. And the reason effectively why it's gold and not titanium or platinum, and that's why people who talk about titanium or platinum completely miss the point, they have effectively zero monetary demand at this point, titanium and platinum. And the reason is they, yes, they're rare to find, but we've only been producing titanium and platinum for the last few decades, effectively, at a commercial scale. These metals were discovered, I don't remember the exact dates, but they're relatively... Yeah, I think it's like mid-1860s, and, and part of it has yeah. to do with the, the melting point. You know, the, the melting point's just so much higher than gold. So it's in terms of the metallurgical abilities that the human race has had, they just haven't previously been feasible to refine. Yeah, and so as a result, you know, we've had a 6,000-year head start of building up a large stock of gold. You know, people were mining gold thousands of years ago in Egypt and in India and in China and all over the world. People have been mining it for God knows how long, and it's widely distributed. So one extra year's production, even with all of our modern technology, is, in the case of gold, it's going to be a small flow compared to the very large stock, whereas in the case of platinum and titanium, if they do start commanding uh, serious monetary premium, if people start requesting them significant amounts in a monetary premium, the problem is, even though it's hard to make more of them, relatively speaking, you can make more compared to the existing stockpile. And so therefore, mining will produce a high percentage of new supply onto the market, which would likely depress the price. Gold is the one metal that has perfected this over thousands of years because it's so hard to find and because we've been looking for it for thousands of years and because it's the one thing that has the least likelihood for us to find mass amounts of it because we've been looking for it for thousands of years, whereas with all the other ones, you know, people sometimes mention a few other metals and they say this one is um, rarer than gold. And I think the misunderstanding here is that, you know, it's only rarer than gold because we've only been looking for it for the last 20 years or 60 years or 80 years. 
And so, obviously, we haven't found as much, but with gold, people have been looking for thousands of years all over the world. All the low-hanging gold has been dug up already, and people are having to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. So, primarily, what ends up giving things their monetary status is this hardness, not just how hard it is to find, but how hard it is to increase the existing supply significantly. And that's why Bitcoin is so fascinating. So this is really, it's kind of the, you know, a calculus type function. You know, it's a, it's a rate of change mm-hmm. uh, that, that matters, not so much how much you've got, but it's that rate of change yeah. uh, to how much you've got. That, that's really the key point. Precisely. Exactly. What about like competition? You said, oh, everybody's going to naturally just kind of be forced into using the hardest money. Why is that? Well, um, Do you have any examples? Yeah, I think the best example for this that I mentioned in my book is silver, the demonetization of silver. And uh, this is why I think it's, it's, it's a very important lesson for people who will use digital currencies other than Bitcoin to think about, which is that you know silver had a very important monetary role to play for as long as people had used the metals themselves for payment. Because um, it's hard to make small and small denominations of gold and then hard to keep track of them and carry them around. And, how, and you know, you can't just easily combine them into a big coin when you want to make a payment. And so, therefore... The UTXOs are difficult to manage exactly. when you're dealing with metals exactly. and metallurgy. <laughs> if you think Bitcoin UTXO is messy, <laughs> wait till you see gold's UTXO. That's, you know, making dust there's... Um, combining dust is much more of a difficult problem. So... It, what ends up happening, what ended up happening towards the 18th, 19th century is that as modern technology, both telecommunication and information began to advance, people started being able to clear payments um, and sending payments across uh, countries. And people started using the gold standard and started using all these uh, monetary and credit instruments that were backed by physical gold. The importance of, of gold's UTXO set in terms of you know combining and <laughs> cutting up the small little coins in the bars became almost insignificant because now you just had the gold locked up in a certain place and you didn't need to make a new denomination coin for every transaction. Only when people came to withdraw their gold, you would give them the amount that they want. And so the the, the need for having gold in small denomination was disappeared. So you could make gold-backed payments in the papers that were at all denominations. And so silver's role for being used as money disappeared when money was now gold backed because gold could be backed you could back paper with gold at all scales and th- and this was a technological advancement with Alexander Graham Bell and with the telegraph and things like that right yeah. in terms of being able to communicate at distance yeah. uh, in real time and then the the need for extensibility uh, on top of gold and so gold was the base layer but then created additional layers on top of it with these money substitutes which eventually just became illusions but all was yep. still functioning as currency in day-to-day transactions exactly so once that was the case once this currency was backed by gold there was little uh, reason for anyone to want to hold uh, silver and so European countries started shifting towards silver and the main, you know, the, 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 the turning point, the, the, the bellwether probably, was when Germany switched the gold standard from the silver standard in 19, sorry, in 1871, after they had won the Franco-Prussian War and asked for their indemnity in gold from France, which was on the, who, was, who were on the uh, gold standard. 
they took the gold and used it to establish a gold standard in Germany. So at that point, you already had Britain, France, uh, Switzerland, Holland, and a few other countries already on the gold standard. And once Germany came along, the mass of transactions that was being taking place within the gold economy was became larger than the silver economy. And then everybody started dumping their silver and moving towards gold. And so the earlier you got rid of your silver, the better off you did. And the two countries that got rid of their silver the latest were China and India. And that was a terrible thing for them because silver, you know, up until then, historically, for as far back as anyone remembers, for as far back as there's been a price between gold and silver, the price was always around 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 to 1 between gold and silver. 15 ounces of silver per ounce of gold or whatever. But after that move, the price crashed. The price of silver crashed for to 40, 50, 60, 70 to 1, and it's somewhere in that range today. And even gets to 120. Yeah. You know, I mean, silver's just been kind of obliterated uh, relative to gold. Yeah, and, 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 and the key thing is that, you know, in the case of money, it's ultimately, when to go back to the issue with the, the, the functions of money, Ultimately, what the function of money is, is informational. Money is a way of storing information about, you know, who performed value. And, 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 you know, it's a way for you to keep score of the value that you've produced that you want to store into the future and spend. So essentially, it's, it's, it's carrying information. We've found metals um, that have been particularly good at carrying this information. But what Bitcoin allows us to do is to get over all of these physical things and focus on the one thing that actually matters, which is the economic characteristic. And so to go back to your original question on, on, on the economic versus physical characteristics, the economic characteristics are the only one that matters today because it's trivial to make the materials, as I mentioned, perform any particular function that you want. So what ends up mattering most is the economic stuff. And Bitcoin just basically beautifully separates all of the physical stuff and just manages to do the economic stuff and does it better than anything physical because there's nothing physical that you can make harder than Bitcoin. And Bitcoin with its software has made something harder and made something stricter. And so that's, I think, what's really interesting about it. And if what I'm saying is correct, I think then the implication over the future is going to be massive for the growing monetizing role of Bitcoin. Yeah, so... When, when we're looking at this history, I mean, all the polymaths have been interested in the money. Like Copernicus wrote a treatise on interest. Isaac Newton is the one who developed the gold standard when he had been at the Bank of England. Yeah. And he had done a bunch of work in alchemy trying to turn who knows what into gold. And yeah. was it, why? why? Why was he so interested in that alchemy? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he wasn't the only one. I think, you know, if you read the list of the people that have been interested in alchemy, it's... Uh, it's essentially uh, some of the most important people to the advancements of human knowledge have been interested in that. It's, it's quite an interesting uh, thing to, to look at. Um, it's, uh, it's not just that he was interested in it, actually. In the case of Isaac Newton, it was that he was, it was what he did. You know, everything that he did on the side, uh, that he communicated with the, the mortals around him, was, uh, you know, it was just how he would explain the stuff that he did in his uh, alchemical uh, spiritual work to the masses, effectively. But yeah, it's something that's definitely captivated people throughout time because the, the way in which the economics of money function, the way they affect human society and human life is, uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, so when we're dealing, we're dealing with these polymaths, like uh, Guta and Faust Part II's magnum opus wrote about all the negative effects that happen to society uh, when they debase or, or otherwise corrupt the monetary unit that they're built on. 
What about the role of the nation state when it comes to money and competition and geostrategy, geopolitics? You talked a little bit about China and India and how silver standard affected them. Kind of looking forward, now that we've got a new, sounder, harder money than the world's ever seen, ever, that is also more portable and divisible, what does that look like in terms of competition and the nation state going forward? Yeah, it's, it's a very complicated question to think about. But generally, I mean, if, uh, I discuss it in my book. The way that I see it is uh, I think you would benefit from comparing the modern-day Western democracy with a central bank. We're not even going to be discussing the examples of you know dysfunctional, hyperinflationary economies. But in terms of you know what it's going to do to the relatively well-functioning modern Western economies, uh, modern sort of capitalist management uh, with central bank, a capitalist system with government management through a central bank and uh, government agencies. Generally, you know, this is, I think, a bit of a historical anomaly. It's not something that has existed all throughout human history. And I think I, I make the case in my book, based on the work of Mises and many other people far smarter than me, that this is, to a very large extent, a product of the fact that we live in this fiat age. In, in other words, it's the product of a government having access to the printing press that allows it to, to uh, meddle in all of these things. It's what allows voters to think of government as being able to fulfill their wishes on pretty much anything because governments are just always never facing any actual real uh, budget constraints and can just uh, do what uh, anybody uh, wishes for as long as enough people vote for it. And all that's missing is, you know, just courage and leadership from the politicians and then they can do it. Like there's never really any actual um, constraint on resources for governments. That's what, how what many people believe, many schools of thought, if you could call it thought, also uh, are built on this uh, kind of thoughtlessness. Yeah, because, I mean, we get a lot of political dogma and not economics, particularly when, you know, you have chartalism that's, that's feeding them. So, yeah. I mean, they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of these false priests of the economics profession are really just political dogmatists. Because it's a battlefield of ideas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Keynes, you know, <laughs> thinking of our, our thoughtless leader, gold is a barbarous relic. What is it really? Like, I mean, you're talking about the role that it's playing in terms of like protecting against confiscation through inflation. That's yeah. a form of taxation without representation or due process of law. You're talking about like government being able to do whatever it wants because it's able to conscript resources into its machinery. No, I think Keynesianism is obviously the barbarous relic and it's not gold. I, I, essentially, what gold means, and this is something that Keynes was incapable of understanding because he never studied economics, what gold means is, you know, it's not because it's yellow and shiny and it's not because any of these things that he thought about it. What gold means is that economic value can only be can only be acquired by creating value to others. So you can only have wealth to spend. You can only have income. You can only have money. You can only earn money if you create value for others. Because you create value for others, they give you essentially value in its in its static form, which is gold, which stores the value. And then you have it with you, and it's ready for you to spend whenever you want it. The only way to get it in a world that runs on gold, that has that is constrained by the physical reality around gold of the difficulty of producing gold and increasing the supply of gold 
effectively the dominant way of getting it ends up being having to work. And that's why in a hard money society, everybody ends up working, doing productive things, because that's how you earn money. And that's the only way that you can make wealth. On the other hand, in a society in which value, you know, we don't waste money on this barbarous relic that is gold. And in in a society that meets uh, Keynes' demand, in which people don't waste that money on digging up that gold, well, you then realize that gold really is the cheapest way of doing sound money. Because the alternative is that you have a money that's easy to make. And central banks are able to make that. And they can make large quantities of it whenever they want. And therefore, the creation of money stops being a, a process that takes economic value, which is either you make value on the market or you spend economic resources on mining gold, which is highly uncertain and toxic and all of that stuff. So it goes from having to acquire value through creating economic value or through engaging in the market process. It shifts from that to becoming a political question. And so economic value becomes something that is politically assigned. Government is able to assign economic value to people based on their political allegiance. And that's essentially what barbarism is. It creates a system where we have masters and slaves, where one section of society, government and people in government and people in the central bank, are able to effectively allocate value and wealth and economic resources, whereas everybody else has to work for it and earn it. And that's essentially a system of, it's a form of enslavement because, you know, you can create value, you can take value from others. You have a banking system that can confiscate someone's value completely. Now, you know, obviously this is usually sold from the aspect of government is going to use this for the good. Um, they're going to use inflation for improving the economy. That's obviously fictitious um, economic nonsense. Because but, how would they even get the knowledge to know what the the people actually want? They don't have any of course. any tool to actually perform that economic calculation and the and the tool that the market does provide which is sound money they're interfering with it absolutely yeah yeah so when we're when we're looking at performing economic calculation what do we actually mean by that in the austrian school well so the way that i think of it is that for economic calculation to function obviously you need the price mechanism you need prices And so prices act as the knowledge, the information, the raw material that goes into economic calculation, the raw variables that go into each individual's economic calculation for them to make their decisions. Based on their own subjective value and comparative value of goods. Based on their subjective valuation and their expectations of the future and all of the technologies and ideas that are available to them, they make their decisions about what to produce and what to consume from various different things. And, you know, they take the price it shapes their decision, but then their decision in turn influences the price for others, and then others base their decisions on it. So it's this constant process where everybody is interacting, and it's, it's a dynamic interactive process that's constantly taking place. That's how markets primarily uh, function. So economic calculation then proceeds through these individuals being able to make these calculations. In order for it to happen, it needs to have a uh, price it needs to all of these prices need to be expressed in the same unit in order for economic calculation to work more efficiently yeah all of the different prices eventually people need to perform calculations using one unit you know to have comparability exactly even if you're going to have to do um, exchange between one currency and the other or uh, one price or the other ultimately you need to do your you know profit loss calculation 
with units together. You know, you have to calculate the same unit. You have to count apples and apples, basically, not apples and oranges. So effectively, everything needs to be measured in this one unit. And that essentially then brings in the role of money as being that numerator that everything is measured with. So that by having everything only priced in money, you only have one price for each good in the market. Whereas if you had more than one money or if you had several monies or if you had a complete barter system, then every good would have a price in every other good, which is just completely unworkable. So the process of calculation, in order for it to function, I think this is really a key point, in order for economic calculation to function, in order for people to be able to trade with one another and be able to make their decisions, obviously they're not, they, they can always make mistakes, but in order for them to have the best chance of not making a mistake, what is needed is the ability to make these calculations in one unit that is the least likely to be subject to the fluctuations of supply and demand industrially. In other words, its own demand and supply are primarily about its role as money. And therefore, it only gets demanded as money and only gets supplied as money. In the case of gold, for instance, I'm, I'm, to clarify what I mean, Mises discusses this in the case of gold, and he says, you know, it's, it, it, it's not ideal that gold has industrial uses because then it makes its price and its its value on the market and this price is expressed in it for other goods also subject to being influenced by the ebb and flow of the production and demand for gold and so you know um the amazing thing about gold was that as it grew in its liquidity and it became uh, more and more used as money around the world its value became predominantly determined by its monetary use and so non-monetary uses became insignificant in its value determination what's amazing about bitcoin is that essentially it's the demand for it is almost purely monetary there's little demand for it that is not just as a monetary asset although you could arguably say that maybe you could argue that the demand for it some of it is to pay for the transaction fee so it's not entirely just as a monetary asset but it's primarily as a monetary asset. And so the demand and, and all, even the demand for it as a, to pay the transaction fee is also linked to its role as a monetary asset. So the interesting thing then becomes is that once you have an asset whose supply and demand is determined by the conditions of the market, determined by people's decision whether to consume or to hold on to a cash balance, then it becomes a purely monetary asset. And then its value allows for calculation worldwide it's the least likely to make erroneous calculations for entrepreneurs and for consumers because it's not likely to have its supply and demand influenced by external factors. Gold is not as good because gold supply and demand um, to, for other uses can affect its monetary role. Obviously, government money is even worse, and that was Mises' original point, because government money is, even though it doesn't have the fluctuations of gold supply and demand, it has the fluctuations of politics and uh, inflationary crises and deflationary crises. And it's not crises. limited. It's not, li- it's not very scarce. Absolutely. The emission schedule is unknown. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the genius with Isaac Newton, right? Is yeah. that uh, he was able to develop this worldwide system for single pricing that made world trade much more efficient. However, when we're, we're, when we're looking at this monetary use only for the assets – Am I understanding you correctly that we want the highest and best use for the particular asset to be money? 
or do we want it that, that this asset simply doesn't have other potential uses? I think ideally you would want it to not have anything. And in fact, ideally you wouldn't even want its supply to be in question. You know, it would just be used as a monetary asset and it would be held only as a monetary asset. Well, what about like in Bitcoin's case, uh, we see Veriblock, which anchor, it's a proof of proof. So it anchors the blockchains of other altcoins into the Bitcoin blockchain. And in the course of doing that, using the op return, which makes unspendable output UTXOs, it's effectively destroying the money supply of Bitcoin because it's locking up these Satoshis as unspendable, but it's doing so in order to anchor all of these other altcoin blockchains. I mean, is that a monetary use of Bitcoin or not under your definition? Do you find that to be positive or, or negative? You know, I, I, I've heard it's been a while that people continue to tell me about um, using the Bitcoin blockchain for non-monetary uses. Yeah, because we've got like proof of existence. We've got, you know, yes. this, this could potentially help harden uh, databases or other information systems by anchoring into the blockchain with things like Factum or Chaincoin Protocol. It could. However, I have to say that, you know, as an outside observer of this, I think th these things have been widely overpromised, and it's not entirely clear that they doing them on the Bitcoin blockchain contains uh, any... Uh, serious advantage over using simpler things like hashing for instance so the thing is well, maybe, well you would you would hash them in order to put it into the op return yes, but, but then once that op return gets anchored into the bitcoin blockchain you've now got proof of existence yeah but it's not necessarily well the thing is i'm not sure that uh, in a world in which let's say bitcoin continues to appreciate monetarily and block space is going to naturally become more and more scarce more and more uh, valuable in that world, you know, about the limit for moving a specific amount of uh, Bitcoin from any amount, from any address to another, is in the order of about 40 bytes, okay? So for 40 bytes, you could be moving, I mean, then that's including some massive optimizations, but, you know, that's a very tiny amount of data. That's an enormously tiny amount of data, but for 40 bytes, you could be moving billions of dollars worth of money halfway around the world yeah but what so, if, but what if it's anchoring trust for tens of billions of dollars of market cap well exactly so for in me in a corporation or something what if exactly that's the big if and so the the onus is on the people to is the onus is to say, i mean we'll start time will tell time will tell whether this is going to be a valuable enough use that is going to affect the demand for bitcoin to the point that it is an economically viable use of block space because you don't you can't just tell me make the case so many people make the case of you know well you can use this and then you get proof of existence or proof of something like that and yeah it's great then lawyers will use it or people will use it or something but auditors auditors or whatever well that's fine but you know these people still have a job today and they're still able to function today they are using other things so what you need to do is to prove to me that the improvement that they would, well, you don't need to prove it, but your idea needs to show these people that the improvement by using the Bitcoin blockchain is going to be worth paying the extra transaction fee that would drive out a transaction that would move Bitcoin halfway around the world. And I remain highly skeptical because I think, you know, ultimately Bitcoin blockchain, and I'm sure we'll discuss this later, for me, ultimately, the settlement, the number of payments that it can settle yeah, and, and the value is much larger 
arguably than how much you could move gold around the world physically in intercontinentally, let's say. And so essentially Bitcoin can provide us a framework for the most secure transactions in the world. So then essentially the the cost of a Bitcoin transaction can continue. Effectively what it's competing with is a gold international settlement payment. And that's extremely, extremely expensive. So the cost of a Bitcoin transaction could continue to rise all the way up to the most expensive forms of international settlement. And as long as it's a little bit lower than it, it'll still continue to eat higher value transactions from current demand. You know, started off with internet funny money and moved on to being the level of, you know, small payments. And now it's growing in size uh, in terms of the payments. And I think eventually it's just going to continue to grow in size as the transaction fee rises. So eventually I, I envision a Bitcoin in which transaction fees are extremely expensive. And I think it's unlikely that in that world... Uh, I think a lot of these other uh, blockchain use cases survive because you know at this at this current price I think the price of a one byte of data on the Bitcoin blockchain is around three cents something like that so you need to justify that a business model it requires so much trustlessness that you are going to put critical parts of your business's operation written up in three cents per byte. Yeah, and so and I'm sorry, and, and if Bitcoin succeeds, it's going to go up much, much higher. Right, because the the competitive good or the substitute good is gold, and like we saw with uh, the German central bank wanting to move 800 tons, I mean that's a very expensive proposition. You got to move all this physical gold, then you got to assay it, you know, because every Bitcoin transaction, it's like you melt down the bar and you recast it, so you it's doing a hundred percent assay. Uh, which you don't necessarily do when you're moving exactly. gold around. That's that. That's really. I like to call it the cost of running a gold full node. You know, the ability to be able to run a, a bank that does the functions of what a Bitcoin full node does. You know, if you want to think about it from an operational uh, technological perspective, obviously it's enormously more expensive. You need to assay gold and you know take responsibility for saying that this is acceptable quality. And then it becomes on you if there's anything wrong with it. So, and, and you need to send it, and you need to um, secure it all along the way, and insure it, and all of that. But even you know that's just the technological stuff. But then, of course, there's the political cost, which is that you know effectively you need to find a way to fend off the United States Army to stop you from, uh, or the you know the FBI, or effectively you know the, the, there's nothing stopping the building of. And gold clearance and banks around the world, even with the expensive gold settlement, it would have been arguably what the market would have chosen, just more advanced ways of settling gold around the world. But it's a political problem. And that's what Bitcoin gets around. That's what Bitcoin is there for. Yeah, Bitcoin's technologically built to be censorship resistant, whereas gold, unfortunately, has proven itself to be susceptible to censorship, largely because it's centralized in place of uh, space and time. Yeah. Yeah, so we've just had a wide-ranging discussion on monetary history. Our guest has been Seyfedina Moose, Austrian economist, author of The Bitcoin Standard, and we're going to be doing an entire week with Seyfedina, so be sure to listen to the other episodes. Thanks for this interview, Seyfedina. Thank you so much, Trace. This has been a pleasure. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at Bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs.
Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.